Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode five of Archives and Future, the podcast for future generations. I am your host, Ivan Lozano. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And this season is a partnership between Archives and Futures and the DePaul Art Museum. We're calling it the Latinx American Podcast in honor of their exhibition, Latinx American, on view from January 7th through August 15, 2021. This exhibition features 38 Latinx artists from Chicago and beyond, 10 of which we will be interviewing for this season of the pod. The DePaul Art Museum's Latinx American exhibition and its accompanying programs like this one are provided through the generous support of the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. Thanks, Uncle Andy. Learn more about the exhibition and upcoming events at artmuseum.depaul.edu. And please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so we can reach a larger audience. With that out of the way, Let's get into the interview with Salvador Jimenez Flores, which happened over Zoom on November 30, 2020. Enjoy. My name is Salvador Jimenez Flores, and I'm an assistant professor in ceramics at the School of the Art Institute. So I grew up, I mean, I was born and raised in Kamai um, until age 15. And that's uh, when we, when I migrated to Chicago um, so, so I guess, you know, like the history between my family and Chicago, it kind of like goes back to, to the time of, of the traqueros, the rail workers. Uh, that's where my great grandfather, um, came and worked temporarily for, for a few, um, I don't know how many years, but he will go back and forth. And then at some point he just never came back. So there, there's some theories that maybe he got uh, killed on the way coming back to, to Mexico, but we don't know. Like yeah. I asked my aunt and we couldn't uh, figure that, that puzzle. Uh, but but she, my aunt, she was telling me that it would take like about three days in train to get from, from Chicago to Jalisco. So that was one, one factor. And then uh, my, my dad the Bracero program so he he did temporary work in in, in the fields of of california and, and after that years he decided to move to chicago to find more stability and that's where he started working for i believe general electric and then um later on he just um decided to get married and and um marry my mom from the same town, Hamay Jalisco. And then in order for him to bring her over, he had to become uh, a citizen. And then uh, she, you know, he brought um, her over and my three oldest siblings were born here in, in, um, in Chicago. But then we moved back after they relocated his job to a, a different state. And by that time, you know, he had purchased a house and and invested his money on land in, in Mexico. So, so they moved back to Mexico and then I was born there and we pretty much live out of the land. My dad uh, was, uh, he still is a farmer and, um, and we were there for 15 years. And then uh, the other kind of like political thing that happened was the North America Free, Tra uh, yep. the North America Free Trade right. Agreement. NAFTA and then that just kind of like um, affected us and and then my dad you know thinking about the future and you put on your podcast he was always thinking about our future like how can I um, provide a better future for for my children and he just realized like even if he were to give us a piece of land uh, we probably wouldn't have make it uh, yeah. uh, there so we slowly started uh, migrating back to Chicago. And then um, I got here in a cold winter in 2000. <laughs> January 18, you know, 2000, I remember. It was very vivid. And when I came here, we also came via bus. So I was able to see parts of Mexico that I never met. You know, I was able to see the whole scenery and then coming through the border and then into, into the States, all the way to Chicago, it was all, you know, I was able to experience that transition from Mexico yeah. to, 
to the States and Chicago. My family on my mom's side is from Guadalajara. And then on my dad's side, they're from South Texas. So it's like, I consider myself almost more Tejano than, than, than Tapatio, but you know, there's definitely both things there, but I would take the bus from, from Texas to Guadalajara all the time. So that landscape of like Northern Mexico is like so imprinted on me. Um, so yeah, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, it was a huge culture shock for me when I moved to, uh, I mean, and I was in Austin, Texas, so it was still, you know, relatively close to Mexico. I can't imagine coming from Hamai directly to like Chicago in winter. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> difficult but that must it, have been. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a tremendous um, cultural shock and, yeah. and very impactful as well. But, you know, I think uh, growing up in a, in a rural town in, in, in Mexico, you kind of like grow up with this ideas of, um, of the United States, right? Like this very fictitious ideas of, of what it's like to be in the United States. And, and I think uh, we're all brainwashed by that. Yeah. You know, we, we kind of have this expectation that as soon as you get here, you're gonna have a big house and, and you know, like even like the sayings, you know, que, you know, like, yeah, and all these ideas, and, and then it doesn't help that when a lot of, um, of, of our uh, compatriotas, you know, they go back to, to our hometowns and they bring these big trucks and all these luxuries, and, and maybe they, they still owe them, you know, maybe they're just yeah. they're still paying all those things, but they just give you this illusion, this shiny illusion of what it's like to live in the states and i think as a as a young person there even not even knowing or understanding that i i, I actually had a green card and i didn't even know that um, yeah. i was already thinking like how am i gonna make it to the states because that seems like that's the only way out yeah that's, that, that, was that resonates really with me a lot that was like one of my first memories like how the fuck do i get out of here there's no opportunities here mm-hmm and um so so that's that's how we you know we got here and um for me it, it was it was great i mean the first time that i stepped into chicago the snow was was high and it was the first time that i got to see the snow so i was just fascinated and and like i said we took the bus all the way from 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 hamai to chicago and then to to um, 56 and Sawyer, that's where, where we first landed. And that's where my dad's uh, brother um, had a house. And then, um, you know, we were all living in a small apartment. And then that's when reality hit right away. You yeah. know, um, I saw the apartment, and I was like, oh, this is where we're all gonna be. And you're like, oh, you know, so for me, as soon as I arrived, reality hit. You know, yeah. I was like, okay, it's not what they uh, say it is or how they picture it, but, you know, but, but it is something. Yeah. And, and it's something that you can make it work for you. And I just didn't know how that was going to pan out for me. But, but at that moment, it was just, it was just reality. I was like, okay, it's not like a three floor house with telephones everywhere you know back then we, right. we still used to have telephones on the and the walls and stuff and and maybe that the fact that we didn't have that many smartphones and share pictures of what life was like i think that also kind of like kept it into this kind of mystery like for sure uh -huh. yeah there's no way you, you have no idea what you're getting into when you say when you decide or when it's decided for you, hey, we're gonna move somewhere else, you know? Yeah. And I think, I, I also wanna go circle back to something you mentioned about um, the way that leaving Mexico and then coming back um, kind of others you and distances you from the people that you knew before. That was definitely my experience that after moving here, going back, I was suddenly the gringo, I was suddenly not Mexican enough. And uh, there was that sort of, uh, not violent, but definitely kind of like a negative, almost like association. It's like suddenly like, we don't deal with you. We don't fuck with you anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not our fault, right? It's like, there's this, there's this like, nida ki nida ya, that really sort of distances you from, from the people that you grew up with, the people that are your family and your friends, um, just because you left uh, and came back, you know? 
yeah it's a strange experience because yeah it's based on on on, on not knowing what the other side is like uh-huh. no it's definitely true like i remember the first time that i went back it was um um after i had lived here for five years so um and that's also when i started doing art you know that's how i got i got to i got into art, art through black and white photography so when i moved back when i went back, back to visit family to mexico I had, I was always wearing this uh, camera, you know, I was like an avid photographer and I carried the camera everywhere. And, uh, and my friends from, you know, from La Secundaria and elementary school, they would just look at me like, oh, you know, like, he's not only coming back from the United States and now it's todo agringado, but it's also like this idea of you're an artist. So you're, you're an additional layer of being an outcast right like people don't understand you and and also you know I was still young and you're still super uh I don't know like emo and really getting to you try to um you try to define who you want to become and I think uh that was interested interesting to see uh myself back in those and embracing the the uncomfortable the the fact that I was uncomfortable being there or that that I made others uncomfortable. Yeah, and reconciling others uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, and just reconciling that, and and I guess for me it was more about like I still care about those those people. You know, they're my friends, so I just kind of like try to not fight it, but just kind of like become to to their to their world. You know, yeah. I wasn't gonna try to talk to them all about art and everything, but I was just more about almost like a chame- uh, chameleon, like trying to yeah. adapt to what um, uh, what was there or what, what were the common things that we had, you know? And of course, it was a lot of childhood uh, memories and things like that. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that the medium that you gravitated towards, and I want to get to why photography, but it's also something where you get to sort of be behind the camera and witness what's going on in front of you. There's a sort of a distancing from, um, from what's right in front of you that happens when you're when you have a camera with you um and as an immigrant i think that's a really interesting kind of thing to gravitate towards to be able to distance yourself from what's happening so you can just observe it because we have no, to do that so much it, to like figure out how to fit in and i think for me the camera was such a such a wonderful tool that i really needed at that time and part of it because when i first came to came to the, you know, to Chicago, I, I didn't know any English at all. Mm. So I, I straight up remember going to high school and uh, my first semester, I did it at Tilden High School, which is like around 47th and uh, around Hosted. And I just remember taking the bus and back then I still used to have a, a, a Walkman, so a cassette tape with um, learning English and Spanish, you know, and then it was accompanied by this book. So it was just really, I was, I was in the mission. I was like, okay, I need, I'm most likely I'm gonna stay here for a while. So I need to yeah. find a way to learn, learn enough to get by and, and survive here. And um, so at that time, you know, everything that I was experiencing, all this, um, uh, all those changes that were happening, I needed to capture them and I couldn't uh, express those through language. So I think that's why I gravitated to photography and, and it was a great coping mechanism to, to, um, to document like what, what was, what, what, what is it that I was experiencing and where is it that I wanted to go then? And I think, uh, I think for me, I, I was not like an artist who, who always knew that I wanted to become an artist since I was a, a kid. I think for me, it was through migration that, uh, that I became an artist, that it was kind of like a survival tool. Yeah. And even up to now, like I've, I still use it as a way of making sense of, of this very uh, complicated reality of what it's like to be, uh, um, you know, a bilingual, bicultural person foreign born in the States, having a dual citizenship and all these dualities and, and alderness and double consciousness, consciousness that comes with it. You know, like 
I don't know what else I would do if I wouldn't make art to kind of like try to make sense of that. I hear you. I mean, we have a really similar background uh, in that sort of double consciousness, double citizenship, all of that. I mean, I, I, I hear you completely. How did you come across a camera or what brought you to cameras or to photography? That, that, that's a great question. And um, it was kind of like, you know, like happenstance. Um, it was a summer, my probably my first or my second summer here. And, um, you know, I was looking for a job and there, and by, by, th by this time I had transferred to Curie High School. Okay. And Curie High School um, had a, you know, pretty wonderful art program. Um, and um, I was not uh, an art major because I was trying to catch up with classes yeah. because I missed uh, a semester by coming to the States because I came in the middle of the semester. So there was uh, an, an opportunity that I say like, go oh, apply for summer jobs. And I applied and I thought I was just gonna be cleaning, sweeping or, or doing something. And then they, um, when I showed up, uh, it was actually Corinne Rose, who at that time was the director of education at the um, Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College. And, and it happened that it was um, kind of like the starting programs of Gallery 37. And, and she was my photography professor wow. at, at that time. And, and the first three days, they were just terrible because I couldn't make sense of how to work the, the camera. And I was frustrated. And part of it was language that I wasn't understanding what was going on. But, but uh, Kareem was a great person to just, um, you know, visually show us great examples. And, and really that really motivated me. And as soon as I started, I started taking photography or pictures, I, I you know, I realized that I, I had, I had control of something, right? I, I could control that frame. Yeah. I could control what I was capturing. And I think that was a, a great sense of uh, empowerment, you know, kind of like, this could be my voice. I can, I can tell stories with this, uh, um, with this tool. And, um, and yeah, and that's that's how it's um, how it, it started. And then I just kept signing up for those after school programs. Uh, my second uh, uh, photography teacher there, um, one was Patricia Pena, and then the other one was uh, Matt Silver, uh, Silver, who now you know he teaches at the School of the Art Institute yeah. too. And you know the same, you know, like I was in high school, but I was getting. Uh, um, training or education from, from, you know, outstanding artists. And I yeah. think that really shaped me in a, in a great way. And, and I remember, I recall Kareen Rose, uh, suggesting like, Hey, what are you doing for, you know, for college? And at that time I had no idea, like I wanted to make money. You know, my, my parents brought us over here to the States to, to have that ultimate goal, right? Like, yeah. Uh, financial freedom and, and, and being stable so I was thinking like I don't know maybe business or something <laughs> but I had no clue what I, what I wanted to do and uh, she suggested like oh maybe you should think into into art and um, you know and at that time I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do not to mention that um, that also I had an uh, academic advisor who kind of like suggested that I, I didn't need to take the ACT because I was an ESL student. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like implying like, oh, that's not, that's not for you. You don't have to take that. So to me, that was like, great. I can just take it. And later I realized that actually that, that prevented me from applying to many other colleges or opportunities. So I ended up, um, going to her Washington College, which it was another wonderful uh, place where I spent uh, a year. And there, that's, that's when I started taking a, a drawing class, just, uh, you know, like a observational drawing. And that I really got into drawing. That's when I started getting really into drawing. And, and, and that's, I think that's, that's when I started thinking, like, I think this is what I want to do. Like, okay, I can combine photography and drawing. And I started creating like this um, 
visual journal where every day I would do something on it, cutouts or whatever it could be. And, um, and I think it was during that summer when I was in the community college that I, I wanted, that I decided and made the conscious choice that I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be an artist that, that, um, that, um, that said, you know, that portrays stories of, of my family, of my experiences as a, a Latinx person living in the United States and that I wanted to make work that mattered in that sense, you know, that, that captured those stories and, and archive those stories for, for future generations. And, and since then, you know, um, I've been making art pretty much in, in some way or some capacity. But at the same time, you know, I, I think I, I just didn't want to break it to my parents, like, oh, I'm just going to become an artist. So I felt like I still had to justify um, and prove them that it was worth it, all the sacrifice that they have done. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's when I was when I made the decision to actually study graphic arts. So my bachelor's uh, degree is in graphic design. So that's um, and the same. You know, I had no no understanding of of how the education system worked here. So I would just I got a few scholarships and I ended up going to Robert Morris College. Then it became Robert Morris University. And now it's part of Roosevelt University. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's, it's just all over the place. And I think more than anything, I was just kind of like finding my way through these systems that I was not getting enough um, orientation or advice on, on how to, you know, how to, how to apply to colleges, but also like what, what are the colleges that have maybe like better degrees in, in arts and design. But I think it's, it's this also this idea of, of making do with, with what's available, right? And, and the yeah. idea that, that um, one, of, one of my professors uh, there at Robert Morris um, said, you know, like the school doesn't make the student, you know, the student makes the school. And I think, you know, that really resonated with me and, um, and Robert Morris actually, it was a great place for me in that sense that um, it wasn't a fine art college, but they had a graphic program and they had this unique opportunity where they would select one student to be what they call like, like an art fellow or art fellowship. And what that meant is that uh, they will give this this uh, student a stipend of I think back then like a thousand dollars a month just to make art wow. just to make art and uh and um in materials and and um the 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 person that I was working there with was uh Chris Fisher who was the director of marketing I believe back then and she kind of like made it into her own project and and base it off pretty much kind of like on a on a based on the grad advising type of scenario like she would come to my studio give me feedback that's amazing I wrote an artist statement and you know and for me like for someone who didn't go through a, a traditional um um finer school that was that was that was good you know that was yeah. a good way of making do with what I was what I had available and I think uh I made that work for for me in that sense that I got more interested into older mediums and so on so so anyways that's that's a little bit of uh how I got into graphic arts and and uh, I did practice graphic design for five years and finished paying all my student loans and stuff like that and and as soon as I did that uh I was just like I was uh, I was still hungry, right? I wanted to learn more. I wanted to push myself, and and I got to a point where I was very comfortable because I had that graphic design job, and I started teaching uh, the Locali Arts Reach, a youth initiative of the National Museum of Mexican Art. So I started going back into teaching the way I got in, into art. I was now uh, sharing that same experience with some younger artists, and I was showing in Chicago and 
and I was very comfortable. I was comfortable and, and that made me uncomfortable. <laughs> and yeah. I decided to, to apply for grad school. Uh, but, you know, even then, like I still didn't know much about grad school, but just I just remember one person saying, you shouldn't pay for grad school. You should just apply until you get a scholarship. And that's what I did. Uh, I applied and applied and got in, in into a few schools and and I just went where the money um, um, showed up and and uh, and that took me to Kendall College of Art and Design. That's amazing how you just you know took life by the horns and just said, okay, use a to go back to Spanish de aquí soy, let's go. Um, <laughs> you got it done. That's fucking incredible. Good job. Yeah. That's 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 really mm-hmm. impressive. Um, what were some of your earliest aesthetic experiences? Because I'm looking here at the video and I see a sarape there, I see a charro hat. And then looking at your work now, there's such a strong um, reference to, 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 to artesanías, basically, is what I want to get at. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Was that something that kind of happened when you were still in Kamai, or is, is that something that sort of came from, uh, from hindsight? No, it, it actually happened in... in um... In grad school, which I guess it's it's a good sideway. You know, when I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, for grad school, that's uh, you know, that was another kind of like cultural shock, right? Like yeah. a little bit minor, but it was a cultural shock. Well, yeah, because in Chicago, there's still a ton of Mexicans. Like yeah. that was one of the things that that you know, after Texas, I was like, I would rather go to Chicago because I know that there's going to be Mexicans there, and that was a huge point. And yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan, like. Yeah, but you know, but we Mexicans, we're everywhere. You know, that's it's true. like, you true. just, we, you know, we have a way. And I think, you know, yeah, we're, we're everywhere. And uh, I was lucky enough that one of my, my good friends, uh, Eric J- no, Jay Garcia introduced me to Aline Guerra. So when I was looking for apartments, I met up Aline Guerra, another um, great printmaker who, who had spent decades in, in uh, Grand Rapids. So right away, I was able to find like this um, artistic community and, and, and the Latinx community that really helped me throughout grad school because in my cohort of, of that program, I mean, the whole school, I was probably one of the few brown bodies there. Yeah. You know, one of the few brown persons and that was, that was difficult. Yeah. And that, that, in fact, was the reason why I wanted to get an MFA so I could teach and, and be that Latinx professor that I never had yeah. throughout my, my whole career uh, or my studies in undergrad or, or grad school. I never had a Latinx pro- uh, professor. I only had a, a African-American professor who, who, was, um, who introduced me to the, to the writings of uh, w e b the boys and and she was the one that kind of like kind of like broke uh like like this bubble you know like and and not to be shy but just embrace who you are and like and yeah. and, and go for it you know and ex- experience life in in this other ways and um so in that cohort i was one of the few folks so it was always great to have that uh that second community that I, I could rely on and you know grad school was a, a great experience for me i think um they were very formative years and that's actually how i got into ceramics uh, uh my first semester uh i took uh, ceramics as an elective and that was actually thanks to to nicole marroquin because before I left for grad school, she she had a studio at Casa Slan, and uh-huh. she hosted like this uh, ceramic uh, marathon, and she just invited a bunch of artists to make plates or paint plates or whatever, and I spent hours, just, yeah, I spent hours just uh, uh, learning from everyone there and. I think I tried so many things that day. Like I, I jump on the wheel and I realized that I, I sucked at that. At, at it. <laughs> and then of course, uh, your first time you're gonna suck at the wheel. It's not. <laughs> and then uh, I did some coil building uh, plates and painted a few. And and even that day we uh, we even did like a, 
like a plaster mold out of my face. And that's kind of like how things have started like coming across. And then right away I call um, the college and I was, hey, I would like to have a ceramic elective. And they changed uh, my schedule and, and I took a selective uh, a ceramic class as an elective. So it was more like independent study. And I connected with the professor uh, who also, you know, provided so much knowledge and, and shared a lot of connections and, and, and wisdom with me was uh, Israel Davis. And he was the one who was teaching ceramics there. And, um, and that's how I got into, into clay. It was kind of like being curious. And, and for the first two semesters, I was still shy with the medium. I didn't want to do much with it. I was just like, I'm, I'm a 2D person. I want to have a simple, practical life. I can fold my drawings. I can take them around. And, and you know, I didn't want to deal with uh, sculpture. And then, you know, I just realized that through clay, I was able to, to capture more um, what I wanted to capture with my stories. Yeah. So I think my drawings were getting, were, were getting too busy. They were getting, they were have, um, there was a lot of information in them. So I think ceramic uh, literally kind of like slow me down to just uh, be more patient and also kind of like be more, um, have a little bit more of a, uh, of an, a strategy on how to break down the work into like what, what I potentially would have put in one drawing, I was able to break it down in a few portraits out of clay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started in the drawing program and I did a lot of drawing um, during uh, grad school, but at the end, the body of work that, uh, that I ended with was, was all ceramics. And, and it had a graphical component that was painted around the, the gallery. I don't know if you saw on the website. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I look at that body of work. I'm not who you think I am as a, as a way of capturing this one thing that we were just talking about, like just the complexity of, of identity, right? And how multi-layered it is. And, and, and I was interested in creating this timeless timeline, right? Like not a linear timeline, but uh, it was a project that allowed me to learn a lot about ceramics, but it also allowed me to play around with, with subject matter and, and being kind of like playful, but serious at the same time. And also uh, that's when I started also using intentionally language as power, like in, in, in some of those, uh, texts that I started incorporating in these installations, uh, you know, there is a reward if you're bilingual, you know, the yeah. titles of these pieces, you kind of like get an extra little thing, like you get it. But if you don't, then, you know, you kind of like miss a little bit of information. So it, I started thinking about, from that body of work, thinking about language as a way of, of access and also uh, not being able to access that. And I think, um, as an artist, we can choose how we use language. And I for think sure. for me, for someone who struggled learning English and still, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to get better at it. Now I want to use that to my advantage and, and, and have this and use language as art, you know, and as power. I think that's a, I think that's a really interesting point and something that happens when you are forced or, um, or given the privilege of, of, of knowing multiple languages, that language becomes a material. It becomes something that you think you can use because it's not something that's just there all the time. You know what I mean? It's like suddenly you realize that things mean something and a word can have different meanings. Even if it's the same thing it's referring to in different languages, there's a different um, feeling to the word or a different like conceptualization of the word. So yeah, I think that like, yeah, being able to, to be bicultural, to have multiple languages in your brain really allows you to kind of break free of those uh, implanted kind of uh, uh, ideas that languages puts, puts in your head. Um, not, not only does it break you free from those things, but it also confuses the hell out of you too. Yes. So sometimes yes. I'm like, what am I trying to say? You know, but hey, it can be productive. That's where art comes from too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
from getting confused and trying to work it out. Now, I have a question about family uh, and about your work moving into ceramics. When I see your work, and my first uh, sort of real uh, spending time with your work happened at uh, Memoria Presente, which was a show at the National Museum of Mexican Art here, where, which was like an anniversary show. And your work was like across the room from mine. So while you were installing it, I was sort of installing mine. And I really love seeing it because it just brought me back to like Mercados, basically, and to like the, uh, the ceramics of, of Jalisco, of like what I was used to. It made me think of like um, uh, sort of nativity scenes and Christmas and sort of mm-hmm. all of those figurines and then the trees of life. And then all of these different crafts that happened in, in, in central Mexico that had such a, a, an important place in my mind because they were just basically always there in my family. Like my family really loved ceramics and there was always sort of like traditional artesanías around. Um, did that make it easier to sort of, uh, I don't want to say come out to your family as an artist, but did that allow them to kind of have a more, um, a better understanding of what you were up to or what you, were, you sort of wanted to focus your life on? I really don't know how to answer that question. I think, you know, I think this is kind of common in Latinx parents when it comes to art. Like sometimes they 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 don't really connect with it, but they really support you sometimes. Yeah. They like or, or sometimes like their lack of support makes you want to work harder. Yeah. You know, like you can accomplish like amazing things through your art. And you you share that with them. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, or <laughs> yeah. Te pagaron. You know, like how much did you get? I'm like, oh, okay. So you know, so I, I don't, you know, I don't take it like a heart. Like if they don't say like they like it, you know. Like yeah. I know my mom. She has a very specific aesthetic of what she would like to put in her house, which is a whole different conversation. But um, but I think um. I'm not sure if that really helped them to access the work better. I think they, I think, I think for them, what is, what is important is the fact that I'm able to sustain a creative life, you know, that I can sustain myself. And I think I, I felt like I kind of had to prove them, like I could be financially stable making art. And, and then I think that makes them more comfortable. Yeah, well, and now you're a university professor, you know, now there's a, there's those markers that are easily understandable also if you're not part of the art world or if you don't sort of um, feel like that's the, the sort of a comfort place like Harvard, SAIC, Mass Art, you know, it's, you've gotten to a point where you can show that success. Now for you personally, when did you um, start feeling sort of that you could kind of really claim um, being an artist or, you know, being a, a, a comfortable creator, I guess, success in some way or another? I mean, I think it, it goes back to to that summer before when I was in um, Harold Washington College. You know, I was, uh, or I, yeah, I was just making a, a visual journal, trying to make art, you know, but I think the beautiful thing about that, that phase is like, it didn't matter. You know, I was not contaminated, if you want to call it like by any teachings of art history or anything. Yeah. I, I was just making stuff. It didn't matter what it was. Uh, and I think that was such a beautiful moment where you just did it because you just had to do it. So I think yeah. that's when I realized that that this is what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly how it was going to form and, and get shaped and where that was going to take me. But that's when I when I realized, like, I want to do this thing. Um, but, you know, it was just such a beautiful moment because you just don't think about, you know, what people are going to think or anything. It's just, it was just like sincere art, you know? Yeah. And I think, uh, even now I always, I always look back to those moments and, and for me, it is important that whatever I make as an artist is stay, you know, it still is authentic and it still is because I want to make it. And I don't want to do it for anyone else, but, but for, for me, you know, and I know it sounds a little selfish, but it is about uh, making work that, that you care about. And then when you find that older people connect with it and care about it, that's when, that's the extra, you know, that's like the, that's the, The that's the extra moment where you realize, oh, you know, art, art connects people. 
Now that's a that's a good segue. Also thinking about how you were kind of unencumbered um, in school with you know sort of academic teachings and on and all that. I want to ask you about a term that I saw on your website that I was immediately drawn to, but also one of the things that really um, drew me to your work, uh, I think, in the beginning, which is Rasquacha Futurism and science fiction. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you got to that, where that idea came from, and what that sort of means for, for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's one of those things that you just follow your instinct and you just kind of like follow, like, I want to call it this, and then let it develop and I think it's one of those projects where I'm still trying to make sense what that means to me yeah uh and I and I and I'm, I'm comfortable with that because like, I think that's a body of work that I I want to continue um working on and develop it and I think I'm okay with being more patient with that body of work I don't want to rush it I just want to let it be but I mean that work came about um, some of the research that I was doing at the uh, Peabody Museum when I was doing that residency at the Harvard Ceramics Program, and just trying to be able to connect the the you know the pre-Columbian, the colonial, and and post-colonial uh, ideas, and then I mean the only thing that is left is future, right? So I yeah. wanted to come up with a term that that speaks to that, and and, and for me, you know. I was really drawn by um, Afrofuturism and, and Sanra, and also the the idea of funk uh, ceramics and and Robert Anderson and and his self portraits and and all these kind of like movements and and then also about the the music by uh, uh, Rodrigo Gonzalez. It's it's like a, uh, el el profeta del nopal, you know. They, that's how they call him in Mexico. And, and there was one very specific song from, from him that really blew my mind how visually it was. Uh, the, the title is uh, Tiempos de Híbridos. And in parts, that's where that piece came about. You know, the first one that you saw at the Museum of Mexican Art. Uh, and even that song, like, like, I feel like I just tap into that song. Like, I feel like I can yeah. continue making work just from that one song. So I think it's one of those bodies of work that I just want to let it become its own thing and, and, and let it grow. And I don't mind um, taking the time with that one. I also think it's really interesting because I also, in my work, I also think about futurism or just about, you know, I'm also really influenced by Afrofuturism. And I think of like, what would a Tessanias look like for somebody that has been in one way or another not connected to their specific past. So for example, like I know that I have indigenous blood. I know that my families go back, but I don't have a way to sort of access that knowledge and that information. So for me sort of reaching out, reaching back into like, I don't know, some sort of ancestral memory to think about those images is, is something where I can manifest myself into the future. And I think that's sort of similar to you, this idea of like having a Latinx professor or sort of manifesting what that means to be an artist and to be Latinx or an immigrant and that's something that's a really kind of important project of mine as well. I was definitely thinking about that when I was, for example, installing uh, my work at Memoria Presente, that it's not just the show that's going up, but it's also an opportunity for like all those young kids in Pilsen and in Little Village and in Chicago to see that like, listen, this art can go everywhere that you want. You know, you can just sort of talk about what you want and you're, you're, you're not stuck with, with, with what you see in front of you. And I think that's so inspiring also about your work, that ability to to widen the lane and to sort of open up what it means to to, to make this kind of work and to be an artist, a, a Latino or Latinx artist. Um, what is your process like when you're making work? Um, I'll talk a little bit about process, but I wanted to say something and what you just touched. And I think um, I've been also interested in, in thinking about the idea of uh, uh transgenerational knowledge that that uh that we can evoke by touching material so i think that's i think i think that's why like for me right now ceramic makes sense you know it's it's like this conduit to to the past yeah uh in uh in the present but it also kind of like it just gives you this 
uh, flexibility to shape it in any way and form that you, you want to to determine your future kind yeah. of scenario, right? And um, and I think for me, you know, before it was just more about art and ideas and getting it out there fast and you know, and I also have a pre-making background, so I'm I'm all about that as well. But I think uh, the idea of craft uh, and in, even just that entering into my vocabulary really opened up other other doors, right? This idea of uh, of craft really improved my art practice, right? So it wasn't just about artesanías, you know. I think I, I think they still still fine art, you know, I think we have a problem. Absolutely, and, and, and for me, you know, that idea of craft versus artesanías, I think it's a really sort of a racist language. So that's also why I try to sort of like bring up artesanías instead of like thinking just and saying just craft because it is a localized uh, national pride of my of mine, you know, to sort of yeah. tap into mm -hmm. that instead of just calling it craft because it's more than craft. It's a, it's a very specific craft and it's a very important history. Yeah, and you know, and I think that has been just really, really interesting for me to have that part of my conversation when making. You know, what does it mean to to be a craft person? I personally don't think that I'm capable of of being that technically well versed like some folks that they can just make the same thing over and over yeah. and it looks the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, but I admire that and I learn from that from when I've seen demonstrations and and that. And, and just like in art, like I feel like, let me backtrack. So there's a few things, right? Like there's this idea of um, even my own training in art, train as a graphic designer, then going into fine art, then adding craft into it and then teaching, you know, as another part of my, my practice. It becomes this, uh, this way of working where you're wearing multiple hats, right? And and in a similar way with language, right? Spanish, English, and then just you try to make things or make sense of those things. And I think when it comes to my art practice, I, I try to find a way of how can I combine all of those into be one thing. Um, so one of the things that I, I like to think about my process is the idea of, of the artist, the citizen, and, and the educator, right? Like initially I would just put in word three different hats and separate them. But now I, I try to see them as almost like as a holy trinity, you know, it's like they're all the same, but how can one fuel the other one and imbalance each other, right? Like for instance, I'm interested in, you know, I, ha I feel like I have the privilege of, of being um, an assistant professor at SAIC, but also how can I continue to share knowledge with others, right? So right now, you know, this is, uh, I'm, um, I was given this uh, fellowship through Three Wall. Rabbi, now yeah. I'm trying to do that, right? Which is, which is uh, Arcilla uh, Arte y Cultura. So I'm trying to essentially make that same knowledge available with the community, right? Right now I'm focusing in Little Village and how I can uh, connect with folks and, and create projects that, that uh, where we use clay as a, as a conduit for community building, right? Yeah. So that's, that's one way that I, I hope to, to share what I know, not just with one specific group, but also making, avail you know, making it available for others. And I think that has always been part of, of my interest and my practice. And, and that also goes with the groups that I'm part of, right? like such as Instituto Grafico de Chicago, you know, we're all about sharing and, and uh, spreading the practice of pre-making uh, with younger generations. Uh, another organization that I'm part of is the, uh, the Color Network, which is uh, once again, another uh, platform that, uh, that makes visible the, the invisible Latinx and people of color uh, who make work with ceramics, right? Like a lot of yeah. people, think that we don't do that. But if you go to our Instagram page or our website, you realize like, we've always been here. We would always be making all, you know, we, we have representation in all fields and all types of art. 
is just and I mean, especially in Chicago, the, I think that the laziness of people. Oh. Look. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that, especially in Chicago, there's such a long history through like whole house of, uh, of ceramics and clay making that's come from Mexico and that's come from the South. Uh, and that has sort of been localized in Chicago. And that knowledge has been sort of like a hub of, of artistic education in the city. It comes from Mexican immigrants and the whole house sort of putting those programs in place. So I think that's so great. What is the Instagram for, for the Color Network? Yeah, it's all uh, lowercase, the Color Network. Awesome. Everybody go follow it. And then the other one will be Clay Craft Culture. And then that's uh, the new program, um, the new project that I'm just starting. What keeps you going as an artist? So when I you're in the studio and you're like, oh shit, I don't know what to do anymore. Or when you're really exhausted and you have a project that's coming up, what is the sort of the thing that drives you the most? I think uh, one of the things that drives me is one, just the need to to make. And I think uh, to the need to capture an archive, like our times and seeing what's going on. And I also see it as a, as a healing mechanism. And I think also what drives it is like when you hit those walls, right? When you get that one rejection letter and you're like, oh, I didn't get this. So that just kind of like pushes, at least the way I see it, um, I like to turn that into a positive and be like, okay, I I have, I don't take that personal anymore. Like I just see it, it's just a difference of opinion. I'm going to try it again. And, And that's something that I try to share with my students. It's just that that doesn't mean that your your work is not good, you know. That's it's a very a important lesson. Opinion. Yeah. And um, and also the fact that we have to apply to things, right? Like if, if we don't apply, we're not gonna get stuff. You right. know, so I'm constantly looking for things to apply or to to work towards. And I think just having projects that that are bigger than you, I think that what drives me because I think that's how we grow as artists. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, I have taken projects that, to be honest, like, I don't even know how I managed to finish them, you know, (laughs) and Uh then, and then it happens, right? So, but also with age and, and things, you realize that you can't just do that all the time. So I'm, I'm learning also to, to be better, uh, better manager, I guess, with my time and the projects that I take, uh, take. Uh, to just always, you know, make sure that I do them right and, and, not, and not try to do more than what I can. And right now I'm still, I'm still like a, a one person show. Like I do everything. <laughs> uh, I haven't gotten to that point that other artists get where they can have assistants and, and people that can do the writing or, or some of the work in the studio. And and I kind of like that. I can't, I kind of like doing it all myself, but with this project, um, Arcilla Arte and Cultura, uh, part of the grant, I, I want to use it to, to hire folks to do work and also empower them. And, 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 and it also is very helpful for me. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to work with different uh, creatives to, to, um, to do that type of work with me. That's a really good point of what you said that, um, Sometimes it feels like with some projects, you kind of like step outside of what you're comfortable with and it's really kind of frustrating or complicated. I know for myself, because I tend to generate a lot of my own work. So for example, like for this podcast, thinking about having to create, you know, 10 to 20 hours of content and edit it and make promo videos and put it online and do all of that. It's honestly, there's so much anxiety that goes along with it. And it's so um, paralyzing if you let it. And it's really important with those things to just kind of take it a step at a time, you know, and to just not think about the entire climbing the entire mountain, but just taking those first steps, you know, and sometimes it takes longer because we're doing things for ourselves or by ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think that's a really important lesson to just kind of keep going and just do one thing at a time, put one foot in front of the other. Um, Yeah. Does your work have... um, what do you feel about it when it's done? Like, does it have like an interior life? Does it like exist at like a moment in time? Um, for myself, when I make work, for example, it's sort of meant as this sort of like uh, parallel processing kind of apparatus 
where I don't have to think about something anymore. So the work is sort of like this idea that's sort of put in a place that I don't have to sort of keep in my head. What does the work do for you once you've completed it? Or how does it sort of exist in your brain? Um, I think, I think for me, it's like the work is always in the head. You know, I think it's, it's, it's this ongoing, I think that's one of the things that, that happens all the time that we don't talk about a lot, or at least in my case. Uh, but it's always like, even as I'm working or teaching, I'm always thinking like, what can I do? Or what am I going to do next? Uh, driving, when I'm driving, sometimes I you just, they just come to you sometimes yeah. at the wrong, not the wrong time, but they just come to you. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to be ready to capture that, you know? And I think that's why it's really important to have sketchbooks and, yeah. And even if the the drawing is not like well rendered or whatever, just capturing the idea or the thought, it's important. And so I think I think one like by finishing one piece, I think it's not like a finished work. I think it's just like the next the is the pillar or this the next the the foundation for the next thing. That's how I look at it. Like like I think if if I want if I like what I want to accomplish technically conceptually yeah. like I have an abstract idea where I want to go, but I'm also in some of those instances I'm not there technically or spatially or or uh, conceptually. Yeah. So I know where I want to get, but it's like I do what I can, you know, and then I think that just kind of like creates this uh, long progression of working towards that one goal. And yeah. I think that once again, that speaks back to the idea of, of setting goals that, that are just beyond like, or projects, especially that are beyond ourselves, right? Like that is something bigger than us. Absolutely. And discipline, think, yeah. sort of the place of discipline and working towards something. And it's also something that, you know, I'm thinking back now to your high school advisor that told you not to take the ACTs because it wasn't for you and how there are these, all these sort of things in culture that are sort of put there to stop us from reaching further um, and how important it is to just not listen. Not listen yeah. when somebody tells mm -hmm. you don't do it. Or listen. I mean, I think listening. Yeah, is listen important. and then say don't, fuck don't it. Don't internalize yeah. it, you know, and be yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Don't internalize it. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, um, and I think as, you know, and I think that's important. I think we all, it's, it's also important to acknowledge that we all work differently, right? Yeah. Like the way I work by someone telling me you can't do it and then go around and, and then prove them wrong or almost taking it as a challenge that might not work with everyone right so i think that's why in general we just as artists and as educators i think the key the key is not to be uh i, I mean i'm sorry for the language but not to be a dick you know i think yeah. you just have to be a, a person and 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 understand that not everyone reacts to things the same way that you are so you still have to be sensitive about how you talk to to people that's really and, good advice. And as you learn that they can take, you know, more feedback, then you can kind of like keep presenting it because not all the students are at the same level or yeah. at the same, uh, you know, a skill level or, yeah. or conceptual level. So you have to treat each student and for that matter, each person as an individual, right? As a unique person that we all are. And, and I think that's, um, that's how I look at it. I don't know. That's good. So you know, kind of got in the way, well, not in the way, but I kind of want to uh, ask you a couple of final questions. And one you kind of just answered, which is what piece of advice do you wish you would have gotten when you were younger? Or what advice would you give to somebody younger? Um, and we've covered a lot of that. We've sort of thrown out a lot of nuggets here and there, but do you have something kind of specific in your mind that stays with you or that comes to mind when I say that? I think it's multiple things, right? I think one is like those doesn't matter what is it that you choose to do make sure you love it and that you're passionate about it and it doesn't matter what you choose it's going to require work yeah it's going to require work it's going to require sacrifices 
Yeah. And you have to put in the time. There's no shortcuts, you know. And uh, and I think the other thing I think it's always important to to reach out to mentors or friends or people. I think yeah. that's something that we we sometimes take for granted. And I think it's important to to those people who have helped you along the way to acknowledge them and and yeah. say like thank you, you know, like for for your mentorship and at the same time create those same opportunities for others you know and i think yes. it, it becomes this this chain of um of knowledge but also like uh of um of creating opportunities for oneself right like we wouldn't be here talking about art and and having this wonderful conversation if it wasn't for for all the uh, Chicanos and Latinx artists who have made so many sacrifices and paved the way for us to get yeah. to this point where now we're we're creating our own platforms. Like yep. a few years back, you wouldn't think of of us doing this type of work. We were waiting for someone to do it, but you get to a point where you realize, no, we can just make this. You're the one. You're the one that likes to do it. Yeah. yeah. If there's something and missing, take it. And I think that's another advice, if you want to call it, is like, what is what are the things that, you know, if, if you're not seeing the things that you want to happen, like you start them, you know, like yeah. that idea that if you don't see that happening and you want that to happen, make it happen. Yeah. And I think that that's what happened with this uh, other organization, the Color Network. It was just uh, a few ceramic artists that, we realized that uh, the national conference in, in clay and in Sika, it wasn't diverse, and and we were like, we want to create something that that make us visible. We want to yeah. create something that also empowered young people, and they see themselves reflected in the field. And that's important at any level, right? In education, yeah. it's important for students to see themselves represented. Absolutely. In the in the faculty. Um, uh and the staff and everything and if you apply that to everything then you realize that you know representation is very important yeah in museums in institutions and in, in anywhere yeah now another question this has been a very difficult year um with a lot of challenges how has the covid pandemic uh and all the stuff that's come along with it has it changed your practice or how you think about art? Um, I think, I think once again, I think it affects us all in a different way. I think for me, it kind of like slowed me down a little bit. I started to be nicer to myself, you know, with, I think before you, you kind of have this mentality, like I have to finish this. I want to, yeah. I want to get this next thing, you know, or I'm working towards my tenure track progress and you know I need to put up the work so I can right. I can get tenure right so I you know I was with this mentality like okay go 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 what else the next thing that I can get to to get there and then I think it just allowed me to just you know slow down a little bit be nicer to myself and I think like you were tapping into earlier you know I think um uh, you know, like I'm a mix, right? Like, like all Mexican people, most Mexican people, indigenous, European yeah. and, and African uh, blood. So I think for me, I think I've been tapping probably more into, into my indigenous resiliency. Like, I feel like I've been relying on that. And, and you know, indigenous people have overcome so many pandemics. Yeah. Historically. So I think... I'm trying to tap into that uh, idea. How can we overcome that? And uh, and I think when it comes to my practice, I've been thinking more about there's a few projects that are straight up emerged from from the pandemic that I'm developing. But also, like I said, I, I'm in no rush of bringing them to light. But they're there. They're happening slowly. Yeah. And uh, and I think. You know, I think just like everything, right? Like this pandemic really uncovered all the broken systems that we have in place 
at all levels. And I think yeah. seeing that it's it's uh, it's eye opening or it's heartbreaking, and also you realize that these are things that you notice, but now everyone is noticing them. So I'm hoping that that we don't go back to the normal that we were used to, but that we try to take this as an opportunity to to find new ways of doing things. And I think that can start with with us individually. Like yeah. what are the things that you want to change for for yourself? And then start making those changes. You don't have to wait for the pandemic to be over. Yeah. And and with that, like maybe, you know, create uh, this uh, domino effect with the people around you and then family and then communities and and what else can we do to make this a, a better place right yeah that's good now salvador um just to wrap things up this has been such a great conversation and thank you so much but i wanted to ask you to kind of end it on a high note um what are you excited about for 2021 other than you know the well obviously we talked about rad lab and uh, that project that you're doing with uh, uh, the Three Wells grant, but what are you excited about 2021? Let's end it on a high note. Ooh, 2021. <laughs> I mean, I think I wanna see too many things happen. I mean, I think I wanna see a government that works. I think I wanna see uh, leadership that cares about yeah. people. I think I wanna see education to be more uh, accessible. I think I want to see people continuing to protest and 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 speak their mind because I think it's it's just crazy times and yeah and we have to work together and I want to see a lot of those things. I think I want to see a new world, you know, and I think it might sound a little hippie or a little bit like wishy-washy but but I think that's, that's you know, when we're thinking about future, whether it's immediate in 2021 or long-term, we have to really think about what is it that we want to see and start yeah. thinking about the future and what kind of reality do we want to, in um, what kind of reality do we want to live in? Exactly. We have to create the future. So finally, um, where can people find you online? So I have a, a personal website. It's uh, salvadorjimenezflores.com com and then um, um, arcillaartecultura.com and also the color network.com or dot org and um, and also instituto grafico de chicago all right well everybody go follow those uh, really great um, initiatives and salvador thank you so much for your time this was such a great conversation thank you for the good questions stay safe and we'll talk soon all right thank you and that is our interview with Salvador Jimenez Flores. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before we leave, some thanks to Natalie Murillo, La Spacer, for our theme music. Go check her out at laspacer.com. Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations, was produced, recorded, researched, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Check out my work at ivanlozano.net or ivanlozanostudio on Instagram. And thank you for listening to this episode. We will catch up next time.